This series is called A Field Guide for Living in an Insane World. And I don't know if you feel this, but the world is insane. But it is not just out there that's insane. It's not just the things that you see on the news and the way that the world is and its values and its wisdom. It's not just out there. The insanity and the need for uh, wisdom and navigation starts here. It starts here because it's not just that the problems are out there in that evil, wicked world. There is problems here. There is conflict and division and disunity that takes place within the church. And there's all sorts of different kinds of division and conflict and disunity that can happen. I don't, I don't know about uh, if you think through your life, what's the most recent kind of conflict that, that, you, that you went through, that you had? Maybe it was at home, maybe it was on the way to church, maybe it was at work, maybe with friends, maybe even a church conflict and community group. Sometimes the conflicts are loud, sometimes they happen over text, sometimes they're quiet, someone might not even know that they're in a conflict with you, and you're like, yeah, we're in a conflict, and they're like, I thought everything was fine. Sometimes it's more subtle and quiet, but we have conflicts. We have problems, we have tension, we have disunity. It happens often. And we have this, the, as Christians, we have these great truths of the gospel and who God is that we are unified around. We have this beautiful family that gets created as we all unite around Jesus and come together from different backgrounds and different statuses and different ethnicities and we unite around Jesus. There's these beautiful things that happen and yet... A lot of that breaks. A lot of that creates hurt. A lot of that, there's division that, that happens. And when you read through the New Testament, you see over and over again, in most of the letters that are written to the churches, you see over and over again, conflicts that are present within the church that Paul or Peter or James or different people are writing to and saying, you guys are fighting, you need to stop. There's a lot of conflict, it needs to stop. There's a lot of arguments. It needs to stop. That happens all throughout the New Testament letters that we see, which in one sense is actually really encouraging because what it means is it's the norm. Another sense, it's discouraging because it means it's the norm and that's going to keep happening. But what it also helps us see is if it is addressed, the Bible is holding out that it can change. If it's addressed over and over again, what that is saying is God can speak into this. God can bring change to this. It doesn't have to be that we are just constantly stuck in division and disunity and conflict. That doesn't have to be the existence. Now, Paul's been talking about that. We're coming up on chapter 4. Paul has been addressing that in different ways. He's been speaking to it at different angles and there's a lot of reasons that we can have conflict, but he has been addressing one of the core things that can create conflict and division and disunity in our lives. He's been talking about it, like I said, hitting it from kind of different angles, but really one of the core reasons that conflict happens, that division happens within churches and within families and marriages, but particularly want to focus on our relationships together, but it applies to other things. One of the core things Paul has been addressing 
is that how we think about or how we evaluate or how we judge needs to change. The way that we are evaluating people and the way we're evaluating ideas and the way we're evaluating ourselves, the way that we are assessing and thinking and judging is off and has to change. And if it doesn't, there will be conflict. There will be division. There will be disunity. That's one of the things he's been talking about and talking about our values and how those are off and so we're evaluating wrong and how our wisdom is off and so we're evaluating wrong and how we're proud and so our evaluation of things is off. And you'll never be able to have health. You'll never be able to have strength. You'll never be able to have good relationships that experience unity if your evaluation of things is off. Imagine if you were to go into the doctor and, you know, they ask you, usually when you go in a bunch of, or the dentist or whoever, they ask you a bunch of kind of evaluation questions about your medical history or where you're experiencing pain. And, and if those tools were just totally ridiculous, and maybe you might think they are, if they were totally ridiculous and had no bearing on anything, the doctor wouldn't be able to actually bring any health to you. He wouldn't be able to bring any strength to you. If the evaluative, if the evaluative tool is off, there's nothing that they could do. You say, yeah, I'm really experiencing, uh, you know, your mark on the list. I'm experiencing a lot of hand pain. I'm experiencing a lot of arm pain. And they just say, well, it looks like you've got uh, cancer. He's like, I think your tool might be off. If they say, hey, I've got a headache. And you go, they say, well, it looks like you're pregnant. That might be true. But it, it's, that's not really what it, that's the, the evaluation is off. If someone were to come in and do an evaluation of your home, maybe you're getting ready to sell it or you're trying to buy a home and they're doing a home inspection and the evaluation is off. It looks like, yeah, there's a bunch of cracks in the foundation and all this. Yeah, I just put a good coat of paint on it. That'll, that'll fix it. It's like, well, the, if the evaluation is off, you can't actually bring strength into a situation. You can't actually bring health into a situation. And that is a lot of what Paul has been trying to address is you guys are evaluating things off. Your metrics are off. Your tools are off. You don't see correctly. You're judging wrongly. If that happens, our relationships will always experience unhealth, disunity, and conflict. And ultimately, we won't be able to navigate through an insane world if we don't know how to navigate our relationships internally. We won't be able to navigate what happens out there if we aren't able to navigate what's happening in here. We have to be strong together before we can be strong and face what is in the outside world. And so Paul is going to address this, kind of concluding a lot of the things that he's been talking about for the first few chapters, saying... We have to get our evaluation, our judgment correct. And to do that, there's three things that have to stop. Three different things that need to stop. He's going to walk us through them. Three things we should not do. The first one is this. Don't be deceived. We need to evaluate ourselves correctly. Don't be deceived. And here's what he says. I'll read this first part. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he can become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, since it is written, 
He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the reasonings of the wise are futile. So here's what he says. Let no one deceive himself if you think you are wise. He's been saying this, and if you've been coming, this might sound repetitive because he's been getting after this same idea multiple different times, that oftentimes the problem is we are deceived thinking we are wise. That the most immature people, the most foolish people, do not think that they are fools. Do not think that they are immature. They think that they are wise. They have deceived themselves. The most foolish person doesn't say, I'm stupid. I make a lot of dumb choices. I'm about to make one right now. That's not how it works. They think they are wise. Paul has been speaking into this, saying, stop being deceived. Your evaluation, your judgment of yourself is wrong. Oftentimes, the immature, the foolish... They are not wise, though they think they are. And the reason that this is one of the sources of conflict that Paul has been pointing out is because the immature, the foolish, see other people's faults, but not theirs. They think other people are foolish and that they are wise. They think, I'm good, the problem is them. This is the world's wisdom. The world's wisdom is self-focused. The world's wisdom thinks much of ourselves and little of others. The world's wisdom is self-focused. It interprets everything through myself and what I think and what's good for me and what makes me feel good and my happiness. And its evaluation is therefore off because it's interpreting everything through a selfish lens. It might, in the church, pay lip service to humility. It might talk about humility. It might say things like, oh, I know that, you know, we're supposed to serve other people, or I know we're supposed to think about others. I know we're... It might say those things, but it is the world's wisdom at core selfish. It sees the faults of others, sees the problems of others, and thinks that it is good, which is why he says, don't be deceived. You think you're wise and other people are fools. You think you're wise, which is why, and if you're coming in, there's a lot of kind of stuff that's already happened here that he's summing up, but you think you're wise and so you boast and you think you're wise and and so you're dividing against other people thinking how dumb they are. You think you're wise, but really your evaluation of yourself is off. This is actually a really common issue that we experience. You ever been uh, driving? And you're driving maybe a little recklessly. And maybe the reason you're driving fast or kind of going through the, you see the yellow light, and you're like, I'm going to make it. And obviously you're not going to make it, but you just keep going. And you're maybe pa- passing on the wrong passing lane. And you're, you're just kind of driving a little recklessly. And, you, and here's what you would say. Well, I, I, I have to. I, I need to get to where I'm going on time. Or I'm late for work, and this isn't normally what I do, but I've got to do this. And you justify what you're doing by the circumstances. Of course, you are a good driver, but the circumstances determine that you need to drive a little aggressively today. And what happens when you see someone else driving that same way? 
the next day. You go, what an idiot. What a lunatic. This is the problem. People should, people should have to get their driver's license evaluated every year. And you believe it's their character that is at fault. You believe that they are the problem. Not, well, I bet there's... You don't immediately say, you know what? That guy cut me off because I bet he's in a rush because he's got a very important person who's grieving that he's going to meet with and pray with. That's not what you're thinking. You're thinking, what an idiot. This person, don't they know how to drive? That's what you're thinking, right? We, we believe that our faults are minimal. And if we do something, it's really just the circumstances have kind of forced us into it. We are wise. Other people are fools. This is what Jesus talks about when he talks about the log and the speck. It's a great image. He says, before you can get the speck out of somebody else's eye, you have to get the log telephone pole that's in your eye out and shows us how we tend to think the opposite. Sure, I might have a little speck. You know, who's blameless? Who could cast a stone, right? We, we pay lip service. Of course, I might have a speck, but you, my friend, have a log. That's how we view it. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Until you're ready to believe that you have a giant log sticking out of your head and that they have a little piece of dust. You're a fool. You're not wise. You're viewing things with the world's wisdom. When you have a log sticking out of your eye, you know what you do? You say, well, I can see things correctly. I see the problem with them. I, I know what they're doing. We feel offended. We feel we feel how bad they are, and we feel all these things, but we don't evaluate it correctly. Our emotions are off. Our vision is off. It's all distorted because there's a log in your eye. That's what Jesus' point is. You don't see things correctly. Your evaluation is off. Your judgment is off because you have a log in your eye. If you think, that the main problem in your relationships, if you've got a conflict or even in the church or marriage or family, if you think the main problem is them, you are viewing things with the world's wisdom. If you believe everything would be fine, everything would work well if it wasn't for them, you are viewing things with the world's wisdom and you are deceived. It's a lack of maturity, even though it feels and seems wise. Because you can point out all the faults and all the problems and all the things that are happening. So here's what you've got to ask yourself. What's the effect of looking at people and situations and myself that way? What's the effect? What effect is it having in my relationships? Is it building them up? Is it causing joy and peace and reconciliation? Is it causing me to move out and serve other people? Is it causing me to have greater depth of relationship? Or is it causing me to pull back? Is it causing me to be critical? Is it causing me to sit by? Is it causing me to be envious or jealous? Is it causing me to see the faults of other people and want them to be thinking about me? 
and serve me and pay attention to me? Or is it creating deeper unity and deeper strength? When you view things with the world's wisdom and you evaluate yourself as the good and other people as the problem, when you evaluate yourself as the wise one and other people as all the fools, that is not God's wisdom. And it creates division and tension and conflict, which is why Paul says, don't be deceived. But there's, a, there's an answer to it of what we can do if that's where you find yourself. Instead of being deceived and thinking you're wise, the answer is become a fool. That's the answer. Let him become a fool so that he can become wise. Now, what does that mean? He doesn't mean just walk around in a, you know, a crazy clown hat or something and just do somersaults and just be an idiot. That's not what he means. That might be fun, but that's not what he means. He means to exchange the world's wisdom, which is self-focused, with God's wisdom. And as he's talked about God's wisdom throughout these few chapters, he has said that God's wisdom centers on the cross. God's wisdom is a cross-focused or cross-centered wisdom. That's what God's wisdom is, which means this. A cross-focused, cross-centered wisdom, which looks like foolishness to the world, but is actually true wisdom. That kind of wisdom is able to do this. If you have a cross-centered wisdom, you're able to say, I am so messed up that God had to die for me. So you're able to actually see your faults. You're able to say, I am, I am a huge problem because I killed Jesus. My life is so messed up. I am sure there's things wrong with me. I am sure that spiritually speaking, I've got logs all over my body. I am so messed up. That's a cross-centered wisdom that says, man, I, I needed someone, I needed God himself to die for me. A cross-centered wisdom also looks at others and says, how can I serve them? That's what the cross shows us, is God coming down and serving us. So a cross-centered wisdom looks at other people not as a bunch of idiots. That's not, how, that's not what the cross shows us. The cross shows us that Jesus looked at us and in humility said, I will serve. A cross-centered wisdom looks at the problems in others and says, I will bring grace and forgiveness. A cross-centered wisdom looks at the problems in relationships and says, how can I pursue reconciliation and bring peace? Not, they are the problem. What are they going to do about it? When you look at the cross, it's a different kind of wisdom that can evaluate ourselves differently, honestly, humbly, and has this impulse to move out towards others with grace and forgiveness and peacemaking and reconciliation. That is what it means to become a fool. Even maybe for some of you, I don't know, if you're thinking about certain conflicts or certain things, you're like, that sounds stupid. Yes, become stupid. Become a fool if you actually want to become wise because that's what God's wisdom is. God's wisdom is he looked at you in your sin and gave you grace. God's wisdom is he looked at you in your sin and said, I want to make peace with you. God's wisdom is he looked at you 
in all of your faults, in all of your logs, in all of your problems and said, I want to reconcile with you. And how are you going to do that? I'll pay the cost. I'll pay the price. God's wisdom is he looks at us and says, I humbly come to you and serve you at cost to myself. That's cross wisdom. When we glory in that and say, wow, thank you, Jesus. That gives us a different kind of wisdom in our relationships. So Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't evaluate yourself as so great, so wise, and other people are the problem. That will keep causing problems. You need to evaluate yourself with a cross wisdom and look at others with a cross wisdom. Don't be deceived. Let me give you just a few practical things of what this means. First thing it means is this. Reject the sin of reciprocity. Reject the sin of thinking, well, I did this for them, but they haven't done it for me. I texted them. They haven't texted me. I gave a gift to them. They haven't given a gift to me. I served them. They haven't served me. I thanked them. They haven't thanked me. That is the sin of reciprocity that destroys relationships. And it's not cross-wisdom. It's not the wisdom of God. Jesus didn't say, well, I'm going to die for them, but first they better die for me. Jesus pours his life out for us, humbly as a servant, graciously, not reciprocally. That's cross-wisdom. I'm not saying that you should be abused or taken advantage of, but our inclination and our impulse in relationships shouldn't be, I'm counting the record of wrongs and I'm counting the record of rights and seeing where we are. And this happens all the time. Why would I keep inviting people over for dinner and they don't ever reciprocate? Why would I offer to watch their kids? They never offer to watch mine. I'm always showing up to help. I'm always doing this. No one's ever doing it for me. Reject the sin of reciprocity. It sounds wise, but it's the world's wisdom. Secondly, it means that we need to overlook the faults of others. Do people in your life have faults? Yes. Do people in your life sin against you? Yes. And yet, it is wisdom to overlook an insult. It is wisdom to overlook an offense. Am I saying that what they did is right? No. Am I saying that every, everything that anyone ever does, we just say, no big deal? No. But Proverbs, was just reading this yesterday with, with my kids. Proverbs says, it is the wise person that is able to overlook an insult and the foolish person makes his annoyance present at once. Everybody always knows when you've wronged the fool. They make sure you know about it. Their displeasure, as soon as they're, as soon as they're displeased, you will know about it. And there's different ways that we let people know about our displeasure. It might be more loud, or it might be, or it might just be silence. There's different ways to let the displeasure be known. But the fool lets their displeasure be known. The wise person says, yeah, I was insulted, whatever. That's what the wise person does. 
And that is actually a cross-centered wisdom because a cross-centered wisdom says, I know that everybody is sinful. I know you've got your stuff. I know I've got my stuff. And I know that the closer we get, some of that's going to just cause some tension. That's okay. I'm not going to crush you with expecting you to never sin against me. I'm not going to crush you with expecting that every word and action and deed you do is perfect. I'm going to expect there's going to be some sin that happens. And does it ever need to get addressed? Yes. Do we ever? Yes. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But it is still wise to say, my demeanor and disposition is, I don't have to jump on every sin that happens. That's a cross-centered wisdom. Aren't you thankful that that's how God treats you? Does the Holy Spirit convict us of our sin? Absolutely. But is the Holy Spirit walking around with a sin calculator every single second and just following you going, there we go again, I knew it. Oh man, thank God he doesn't. A third practical application. is in any of your conflicts, and I've kind of already said this, but just in any of your conflicts, here's what you need to do. Start with assuming you're the problem. And just start there. I'm not, I'm not saying even at the end of the day that everything's 50-50, but just that is the log spec mentality. Think about your relationships. Think about anywhere you feel tension. Think about anywhere you feel conflict and assume this. I'm probably the problem. Start there. You'll never go wrong if you start there. Are there relationships that are abusive and it's, it's totally one-sided? Yes, all that exists. But it is a helpful practice to say, you know what? I'm going to start by believing in my marriage, in my family, in my community group, in my church, I'm the problem. You start there, you've got cross-centered wisdom. So if we want greater health and we want less tension, we have to see ourselves rightly and not be deceived. That's the first thing. Don't be deceived. The second thing that he tells us is don't boast in your leaders. And he's been talking about this throughout. Again, this kind of passage that we're looking at is a bit of a summarization of the things he's walked through. We have to evaluate ourselves correctly. We also have to evaluate how we relate to leaders correctly. Let me read this, and then we'll talk about it. He says, so let no one boast in human leaders, for everything is yours, whether Paul or Apollos, these were two different leaders, or Cephas, that's another name for Peter, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. Everything is yours, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. So he says, don't boast in leaders. Now, truthfully, and I, I don't know how you feel, but as I, as I read this, it feels to me that this is not as big of a problem in our day and age as it was maybe for them. But maybe it's just more subtle. Maybe it happens, but it's just happening more underneath the surface. We are constantly influenced by different ideas. Some of you read a lot of different books, listen to a lot of different sermons, have different people you follow on social media that are teaching you various things, whether about marriage or parenting or faith or 
life or whatever it might be. You have different people that are influencing you in different ways. There's different methods of doing things. Sometimes, even within the church, different people that serve, different community group leaders and church staff and, and people that we look at. And sometimes what happens is, well, they do this, or he says this, or she says this, or at my old church this, or in this community group this. So why can't we do this? Why don't you do this? We might not say what the church in Corinth did, I belong to Apollos, I belong to Paul. We might not say that, but it can be a similar mentality where we have these certain teachings or experiences we've had from leaders, influencers in our life, and then we judge the other people around us saying, well, why can't you do that? Why can't you be like that? Why can't you be gifted like that? Why can't you say things like that? Why can't you relate like this? And here's what happens. We end up missing out on the different gifts that God's given his church. We end up missing out on the different emphases that God gives different people. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, they wouldn't have done things exactly the same. We ended up missing out when we say this has to be the way it is. And I'm going to evaluate everything else based on this, based on this book, based on this teacher, based on this group of people, based on this denomination, based on this church experience, based on this, and everything is going to get evaluated by that. We miss out on the different giftings and the different contributions and emphases and personalities that God has blessed his church with, and we become dependent on one thing, one voice, one source. And what solves that, Paul says, is to remember that everything is yours. Everything is yours. It's all yours. All the teachers are yours. Everything in the world. Now, I'm not saying you, you know, walk into King Supers and say, everything is mine in the whole world. You know, this is not a, but he is saying, God is for you. You belong to him. And so he has given you amazing gifts that are varied and wide. He's given you voices that speak into things in this way and voices that speak into things in this way. And he's, he's given you varied voices and giftings and leaders and teachers and experiences and influences. And God has lots of gifts that he wants to give. And it's all yours. You don't have to just say, well, I only want this gift. This one's mine. If, if you give your kids or your nieces or nephews or spouse or someone gifts at Christmas and you have all these gifts in the stocking or under the tree and they say, well, no, I'm only going to play with this thing. And those are stupid. And anyone that plays with those is dumb. And you're like, well, that would have saved me a lot of money if I knew that, first of all. But second of all, no, it's all yours. And you can enjoy this gift and you can enjoy this gift. This is maybe kind of silly or I don't know, a little bit of a personal example, but my mom was telling me recently that my brother is a pastor as well, and she was talking to my brother and saying, man, I, I really like 
Caleb, that's me if you're new, I really like Caleb's preaching and I really like your preaching, and, but Caleb kind of does it like this better is what she said. And then, uh, no, I'm just joking. And, but you know, you kind of do it like this. And, and she's like, I don't, it feels weird that I like both of your preaching. And my brother just said to her, he said wisely, it was the only time he's ever made a kind of a wise comment, but he said, um, <laughs> I can say that because he's not here and he's my older brother and I have a lot of payback to do. Um, and he never listens to my sermon, so I can say whatever I want. Um, but he said, well, no, mom, like it's, you can say, I like apples and I like grapes. You can, you, there's, it's not like, well, no, but I have to choose. It's okay to say, I like this and I like this. Listen, God, Apollos is good and Paul is good and Cephas is good and everything is yours. What happens is if we feel like, well, no, it's just this thing, we miss out on the different ways that God wants to bless us and gift us. We miss out on different emphases. I've learned things from Baptists, and I've learned things from Presbyterians, and I've learned very minimal, but some things from Catholics. I've learned some things from, no offense, uh, well, maybe, but there's, I've, there's <laughs> Mother Teresa has said some good things. Um, there's, I've learned things from people from everywhere. I've learned things. It doesn't mean that there's not false teachers. No, there are false teachers. We need to be discerning. doesn't mean that there's not bad things that are out there that we have to say, I need to reject that. No, we should do that. But we should also be able to say, God has a lot of gifts that he wants to give to us. A lot of things that we can benefit from. A lot of things that we can appreciate. And it's all yours. Because if it's good, if it's actually from God, then it's yours. If it's actually from God, then it's yours. If it's not from God, then you should reject it. But if it's actually from God, it belongs to you. It doesn't matter if it came from this voice or that voice or this church or that church. This is a helpful thing. I I don't know how much you struggle with that or if you do. But Paul says one of the things that can create division, disunity, conflict in our relationships is a wrong evaluation of our relationship to the different leaders that God has put in our life, whether those are direct influences or they're teachers and authors and people that we consume. We can learn, receive, benefit. We don't have to think that there's just one thing and I evaluate everything through that message or that tone or that emphasis. It's all yours if it belongs to God. God has much to give you. He's a big God and has a lot of gifts for you. And then the third thing he tells us that we are not to do is don't judge prematurely. Don't judge before the Lord comes, he says. This has to do not with how we evaluate ourselves, not with how we evaluate kind of our relationship to the the teaching that God has given to us, but how we evaluate the actual leaders or other people in our life, particularly the leaders, but there really broadens to how we evaluate other people as well. They are rejecting Paul. They are hypercritical of Paul. Here's what Paul says. A person should think of us, him and Apollos and Cephas, 
the different leaders that God's put, a person should think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. And then praise will come to each one from God. Paul says they are judging prematurely, and there's really two key problems that they're doing. The first is that they want their opinions or their standards to be the thing that is the guide. Paul says, it doesn't matter to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court, popular opinion, and well, here's what they say, or here's what they think, or we took a poll, or we took a survey, or here's what some people are saying. Paul says, I don't, I don't care. Paul says, I don't care how you judge me, and I don't care how the, the courts of popular opinion are judging me. Oftentimes, People want their opinion, their standard, their metric, or what popular opinion says, human courts, to be the guide on what decisions are made, on what is done, on how it's done. And Paul says, no, that's wrong. And then secondly, the other problem is that they are judging prematurely. And by what he says the Lord does, who brings to light what's hidden in darkness and reveals the intentions of the hearts, you can see what that means, which is that they are imputing or inferring or saying, here's what this person is doing. They're judging the motives, the intentions of the heart. They're guessing about the facts. They're guessing about the future. Well, if you do that, here's what's going to happen. When you, you did this because your heart believes this or thinks this or feels this. And the reality is they don't know what they're talking about. They don't know. They're judging prematurely. They, they're claiming access to information that only God has. This is a common temptation. It's a common temptation to do both of those things that Paul said are the problem either to say, you have to be evaluated by my standards or the popular standards, or to say, I know what's going on inside your heart. I know what your decision is going to lead to. Paul says, you cannot judge by those things, and particularly when it comes to the leaders that God has given to the church. Now, this feels a little bit weird since I am a leader in the church, so it feels a little bit weird to say this, but it's in the Bible, and I believe it's needed. But oftentimes, this happens in the church, that people evaluate the pastors, the leaders of the church, based on their criteria of here's what success looks like, or here's what most people think, or here's my favorite model, and are you in line with it, or here's what I desire, here's what I want, are you doing that? Here's what hurts my feelings, here's what makes me feel good, are you doing that? 
people want to judge the leaders and decision makers and decisions and values and practices of a church based on their beliefs, opinions, what hurts them, their feelings, their complaints, their wants, what they've seen other people do, what they believe is successful. They look at the heart and say, I know what you're doing and it's wrong and here's why you're doing it. And Paul says that pressure that is put on particularly pastors and leaders in the church to conform, therefore, to what somebody's judgment is or the courts, the human courts of popular opinion is wrong. And it would be unfaithful of him to conform to that. He says, I can't do that. He says, as a pastor, his job is to be faithful to God. A person should think of us in this way. Servants of Christ, managers of the mystery of God. He has to be found faithful. And he says, it's the Lord who judges me. That has to be the guide for any person in church leadership. For me, for any pastor, for any leader, that has to be the guide. That God is the one that evaluates. That God is the one that judges. That God is the one that sees the heart. Good and bad. That has to be the guide. Which is actually really good for church. Really good. If you are part of a church, it's really good if people don't conform to your desire. If they are a good, faithful pastor that is saying, I want to honor God and God's my judge, that has a lot of protection for a church because they're not swayed by popular opinion. They're not swayed by the people with the most influence or the most money. They're not swayed by people that, that are special interest groups or the loudest complainers. They are saying, I have to be faithful to God. God will judge me. That is actually good. In a moment, it might not feel good because you might want your way or want what you think or want what your group thinks, but it's actually really good for a church. If a pastor, if leaders are truly authentically saying, my job is to be a faithful manager for God, and so I can't care if you judge me. I can't care if you're mad at me. I can't care if you don't like me. I can't care. If a certain group says, well, this is what we think, I can't care. God judges me. That is the safest and the best for a church. Can that be abused? Yes. Are there bad leaders in the world? Yes. Are there pastors that have made national news that have scandals and they're awful? Yes. All that happens. So what do you do? I don't know. It's kind of tricky. But you do have to just trust God. You have to be able to trust God. There's qualifications for people that are in leadership. And you have to be able to trust that God's at work. Or go away. And I'm not saying that in a mean way, but go somewhere where you can say, okay, I trust that this person meets the qualifications of an elder that God has laid out. And they're trying to live this out for what God says. And they're really trying to be faithful to God as their manager, God as their judge. That's what they're trying to do. No human leader is going to be perfect. Of course not. But you want to be in a place where you know this person 
believes God's their judge. They're not swayed by what other people think. Because that might go really good for you one moment and really bad for you another moment. That might be exactly what you want one time and exactly painful and hurtful to you another time. You need someone who says, even if you hate me, even if you gather all your friends and gossip about me, even if you, you threaten to leave or stop giving or control, even if you make threats, God is my judge. That's what you want. Someone who is saying, I know I'm accountable to God. That's what you want. And Paul says they are judging prematurely. They're looking at him critically. They're looking at him and thinking he's weak and he's not as successful as certain people and he's not following the standards that they want and he's not doing it this way and he's not doing it that way. And there's all these different criticisms that they bring up. And Paul says, I don't care if you judge me. I don't care if the human courts judge me. And Paul says, I don't even care if I judge me. The Lord is my judge. And that's who I have to be faithful to. And ultimately, that is what you want. And I'll just say a word to those of you that are Christians. <laughs> Even though this is for a way that we should think about the leaders and the pastors in the church, this is really true for all of us. You don't want to be controlled by the opinions of other people. You need to be controlled by God's judgment of you. Otherwise, you will be a coward. If you are controlled by, well, how are you evaluating me? What do you think of me? You will be a coward and you will not make the right decisions. You will not be wise and your relationships will not be healthy. You must be controlled by God. Now, can you be foolish in your own eyes? Yeah, we already talked about that. Can you make wrong choices? Yes, that's why we need community. We need one another. But you will make wrong choices if your ultimate gauge is not what does God say? And let me just broaden this a little bit because even though Paul is directly talking about that they're judging him and Apollos and these people prematurely, this is a problem that extends to all of us and just how we interact. And I don't just mean particularly here at True Life, but just as Christians and people. That this same mindset affects all of our relationships that we have a propensity to look at one another and find fault. Think that we know what's going on. Pastor, author, the late uh, David Powelson says this. He says, we judge others, criticize, nitpick, nag, attack, condemn, because we literally play God. This is heinous. There is only one lawgiver and judge the one who is able to save and to destroy. This is a quote from James. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you when you judge? None other than a God wannabe. In this, we become like the devil himself. We act exactly like the adversary who seeks to usurp God's throne and who acts as the accuser of the brethren. When you and I fight, our minds become filled with accusations. Your wrongs and my rights preoccupy me. Do you see that show up in your relationships, in the church, with other people, in your marriage? We see their words, 
We see their actions and we judge it. We nitpick it. We believe we know what their motives are. We believe we know what that text meant. Even though it could go one of a hundred ways if we're honest. But we know which one it was. We know what they meant, what they really meant when they said that. But we don't know. We're judging prematurely. This is a silly example. I've used this before. Maybe some of you have heard it. I'm getting old, so now all my examples have to come with that qualifier. <clears throat> when I was, I think I was in eighth grade, 70 years ago, and um, no, not really. And uh, I, I had awful vision. I had horrible, horrible, like almost legally blind. And I didn't have contacts yet, and I hated glasses because four eyes, right? And didn't want to look like a dweeb, so no offense. But it was like, I'm not, not wearing those. And uh, this one person eventually came up to me and was like, you're so rude. I was like, why? What? You ignore me every time that I wave at you. And I was like, I literally can't see you. That's <laughs> actually what's happening is we're walking by each other, and I literally can't see you. And I always remember that as they're thinking, I'm just, I mean, I don't, what kind of total jerk would just be like, huh, they're waving at me and just walk away. I, that's who they thought I was. But I was actually blind. <laughs> You're wrong that I, I am ignoring you. I'm just very uh, vain and don't want to wear glasses. That's the real problem. You've misdiagnosed it. My issue is vanity, not ignoring But oftentimes, that's how we start. We start with suspicion of other people. We start with suspicion of their motives. We start with suspicion of that text and what they meant and what they did or didn't do instead of being charitable, trying to believe the best about people. A man named Ken Sandy who leads, he created a ministry called Peacekeepers and now leads a ministry called Relational Wisdom. He says this that I think is really helpful. Let, let God use this. We need this for our relationships. Making a charitable judgment means that out of love for God, you strive to believe the best about others until you have facts to prove otherwise. In other words, if you can reasonably interpret facts in two possible ways, the bad way, the good way, God calls you to embrace the positive interpretation over the negative, or at least to postpone making any judgment at all until you can acquire conclusive facts. Paul teaches that love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. In other words, love always looks for reasonable ways to trust others, to hope that they are doing what is right, and to interpret their words and actions in a way that protects their reputation and credibility. This is the essence of charitable judgments. So often we do the exact opposite. I'm assuming the worst. I bet you meant this. I bet you're actually doing this in secret. I bet there's a problem. Instead of trying to interpret things in a charitable way. So, is there ever a time when we can properly form a firm opinion about someone's motives? Yes. We may do so whenever the other person expressly admits that such motives, or when there is a pattern of incontrovertible facts, notice how many times he has said facts, that can lead to no other reasonable conclusion. So when can you assume someone's motives are bad? or When, when they tell you they are, or when there are so many facts, not just your interpretation, but facts that show there's no other way to see this. 
But when such clear proof is not present, it's wrong to presume we can look into others' hearts. Exactly what Paul's saying. And judge their motives for their actions. Scripture teaches that God alone can see into the heart and discern a person's motives. When we believe that we are also able to do this, we are guilty of sinful presumption. Don't judge prematurely. What if we did what he just described? I promise you, your relationships, my relationships, our relationship would be better. If we were operating with a charity towards other people, man, so many things would be better. So how do you evaluate leaders or the other people in your life? First of all, it might just need to start with confession and saying, God, I've, I've really not been doing that. I've been really uncharitable to people. I've been assuming. I've been suspicious. I've, forgive me. Help me to look with charity. Help me to look with grace. That is our calling. And God wants to give us relationships that are built on that. So we need to be able to navigate through an insane world, but it oftentimes doesn't start with the knowledge about what's happening out there. It starts with here. It starts with how are we evaluating things here? How am I evaluating myself? How am I evaluating other teaching and my relationship to leaders? How am I evaluating other people? We have to address that if we want to preserve unity and have strong relationships and deep community. That's what we have to do first. We have to be strong here if we want to be able to face an insane world. All of those things come from having God's view, the cross-centered wisdom. And when we take communion, which we're going to do in just a moment, if you're a Christian and you didn't grab one of the little communion cups on the way in, you grab one of those. And we take communion every week to remember that cross-shaped wisdom that Jesus had his body broken for us. He had his blood shed for us. He looked at us and served us. He looked at us and humbly came to us. He gave us grace. He looks at our faults and our sins and forgives. That's his wisdom. That's the cross wisdom. And so as you take communion, confess sin. Confess where you've evaluated yourself or others or lived with wrong judgment. And thank God for his judgment of you in Jesus. Thank God that he is your judge and that if you are in Christ, he judges you forgiven. He judges you cleansed. He judges you family. That's cross wisdom. We're going to pray Take communion when you're ready. We'll sing a few songs in response. I'll be in the back if anyone would like prayer for anything. God, I thank you for the wisdom of the cross, the grace and the love and the mercy that you show to us. Thank you. May we rest in that and may we extend that to one another. In your name, Jesus, amen.